1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read this before we jump in. I'm going to start with this question here. So uh, here's a question I want for us to think about. So what does a community or an individual that is experiencing anxiety, exhaustion, and suffering need to hear? Need to hear. What do you need to hear? So if that's you, you've been in a state of exhaustion, anxiety, suffering. Again, it could be as a result of just, you know, life, big life decisions, choices. It could be the result of you trying to live faithfully for Jesus, and there's pushback, pressure against you, currents that are constantly pushing against your devotion to press on into Jesus. Uh, Whatever type of packaging it takes, uh, the net result is you feeling this deep sense of anxiety, stress, uh, exhaustion, and suffering. What, What do you and or this community need to hear. This is exactly the community to whom Peter was writing, and he's got some incredible Holy Spirit-inspired words to share. I want to read them to you, and then we will just kind of take some time to meditate, to unpack them, to think about them, and then, and then we'll be done. We'll be done. Actually, we have one more message in the book of First Peter. That's next week. I actually won't be here. I'm going to be on vacation, but you do not want to miss next week. I promise you it's going to be really, really, really good. Um, but anyways, let's jump in. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Here's what he has to say. Humble yourselves. I'm going to pause real quick because I can't resist the temptation. Why does he say this? I think like a lot of us, the temptation for us when we are in these states of anxiety, exhaustion, is we feel the need to fix something. We feel the need. It's all on me. It's on my shoulders to do something about my circumstances. I will need to fight. I will need to resist. I will need to push back. I will need to pull myself up on my own bootstraps. I will need to do something, revolt, whatever. And the temptation is to become arrogant, to become inflated, self-inflated with your own self-importance. And I think what Peter's suggesting, first and foremost, is it actually all doesn't depend upon you. There's a God who resides over all things that actually is in the process of working all things together for good. Here's what he goes on to say. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. And this is the main corpus of what we're going to be focusing on here today. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering that you're going through, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts up to all that you have. We want to learn. We want to humble ourselves. We want to take a posture of, 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 of student, learner, at your feet, as worshiper. You alone are king. And so, God, right now, um, move in this place to make all things new. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So I'm going to jump right in. And like I told you, I, what I 
really want to do this morning. I just want to take this passage bit by bit and kind of make our way through it because it's so rich and our time's so short and uh, there's a lot that I want to communicate. So I'm just going to kind of let Peter do the majority of the talking. There's a handful of points I just want to make as we go through this. So the first thing I really want for us to think about is number one, like we looked at at the end of verse nine or nine B, if you're like, what does nine B mean? Nine B just simply means the second like iteration of verse nine. So he focuses on the fact that there is a tendency within communities that are going through various forms of oppression, which, again, we've been describing for the past several months that this community of people that are following Jesus that Peter is initially writing to, uh, they're facing not only political pushback, but also uh, public opinion pushback. They are literally trying to be faithful, following Jesus, and yet everything is hostile against them. And so Peter is consistently saying, uh, be humble before God. Know that God is with you. Know that God is for you. God isn't forsaken you. He's not forgotten you. He will carry you. Um, also, he wants to remind them that there is an enemy that's prowling about, that's trying to destroy you, but he's, he's, he's a toothless tiger. Uh, he, he can scare you. He can completely make you feel as if uh, terror is your only way forward, but his, his, his growl or bark or whatever tigers do, uh, purr, I don't know, is, 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 is worse than its actual bite because he, all, all the tiger can do is actually maul you. He doesn't have actual teeth. He's been defanged. That's what really the, the big picture of the New Testament is, is that Jesus has defanged death and all of its enemies. Um, and even though it could terrorize us in terms of fear and anxiety, so his whole point is like, place your confidence in God, be aware of the enemy prowling about trying to destroy you. And then his whole point here is that knowing that the same types of suffering, you're not alone in this, is being suffered by everyone throughout the, the known world. And again, by the time that Peter had written this, this is a Christian community that was scattering abroad throughout what we would know as probably uh, Asia Minor or otherwise known as modern day Turkey. So the Christian movement was spreading. So you have pockets of Christian movements within Greece. Uh, like Corinth, and you have them within Asia Minor, like we just mentioned, in, in Turkey, in uh, the, the region of uh, uh, North, northern, uh, South, northern Africa, and throughout the Middle East. Uh, these pockets of Christian movements are beginning to spread in the region of Rome and so on and so forth. And what he's saying is that in all of these areas, because they are a minority group, they don't have political clout. Nobody knows who they are. They haven't been sanctioned. There's no, like, registration, like, hey, we are part of the religious affiliation of people called Christians. Christians, we don't know that religion. We're going to kill you. And that was kind of the main idea that was going on. And what was happening them within them, they were trying to remain faithful to Jesus, even though the culture, by and large, was pushing back against them. So Peter's whole point is that remain faithful to God, even in the midst of this whole thing, because you're not alone. The entire community of Jesus' people are suffering the same type of fate. So what I thought I'd do as we kind of make our way into this and before we move on to the next little section of this, I want to just pause and think about because in a sense, this has never changed throughout the history of Christianity. So for 2,000 years of church history, the church has consistently grown. And it's really easy for us, especially as Americans, to think that the, that the shape of Christianity looks like uh, evangelical white American, predominantly white American uh, versions. And what I would suggest to you is 
even though that may be what is most familiar to us as Americans living on the Central Coast, living in California, that may be what we are most familiar with because it's kind of what is around us. Most megachurches kind of fit this particular bill. Those are the ones that get the majority of uh, airtime. Those are the ones that are oftentimes get embroiled in the majority of scandals. They have the majority of population that we would identify with in America. So it's easy to think that that's what all Christianity throughout the entire known world looks like. And I want to suggest to you that's inaccurate. That's in, 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 incomplete uh, assessment of the church. Um, sociologists and historians have um, studied these statistics, and what they've remarked on is actually the future of the church in the world, not just America, but in the world, is actually not American Christianity, which in, in my opinion is like, that's super encouraging. That's awesome. I love that. Because I, I don't think we have the best version of Christianity on the planet, to be really quite frank with you. Again, I'm, I'm part of the system, if you want to think of it that way. I'm a pastor in a, you know, predominantly, you know, Western, you know, region of California. So I'm, I'm part of that. I get it. But I'm also not afraid to offer critiques where critiques need to be made. Um, but that being said, uh, they would suggest that the majority of the future of the church, so we're talking the next five years, 10 years, 25 years, that the future of the church in the world will be from Asia, will be from uh, South America, and from Africa. In other words, literally, it will look black, brown, and yellow. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in any, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just being serious. That this is what the image, the picture, it will look like this. To me, to step back from this, what's radically encouraging about this is we learned just a couple quick things. Number one, the church is radically universal, radically universal. So I would say this to you. If you're somebody that within our cultural milieu has a deep value for multiculturalism, that has a value for multi-ethnic type of communities, if that's something that you value, if you value social justice, if you value the importance of, of, of uh, equality, people come, then honestly, you should absolutely be enamored by this thing called the church. It should blow your mind. It should be something that you look at and say, I want to devote the sum total of my energies to the formation, the cultivation, the, the, the communication to this thing that Jesus created called the church, because that's exactly what it is. And so with that being said, just because the majority, the future of the church will look like it from these particular regions of the world, does not mean it's going to, again, have these same types of freedoms that we enjoy here in America. In fact, we know based upon culture and based upon historical values and references and whatnot, that right now, most of these areas in the church, in these regions of the world, are under incredible persecution for their faith. And yet, in spite of the incredible pushback, the church is thriving. So I thought it'd be kind of fun just to uh, just focus on some of the voices of some of these. And if you aren't familiar with Voice of the Martyrs, it's a, uh, an organization that's been around for a long time. So I want to just look at some of the stories. In fact, you can just go to their Instagram page. I would highly recommend just, you know, following it. It's a lot of great stuff and resources and whatnot. And it takes you on the journey uh, through a lot of different people's lives and their stories uh, in, in brief. And there's, you know, you can subscribe to the magazine and get their stuff and all sorts of other information that go along with it. But I thought I'd just kind of like give some snapshots right now. This is like up to date within the past like five, maybe 10 years of Christians, your brothers and sisters. They, you will meet them someday. You will be with them one day in, in glory. 
with King Jesus around the throne. And this is going to be the company that you're going to be with. They don't look like you. They don't dress like you. They don't act like you. They don't talk like you. They don't use the same pronouns as you. But they're deeply devoted to, to Jesus. So I thought it would be interesting to just kind of hear some of their stories. Next slide, I want to introduce you to this particular gal. Um, her name's uh, Justina. I'll just read this to you, and hopefully some of these will make sense. In February, Justina's husband had hopped on a motorbike to go baptize Christians in a nearby village. The next day, his body was brought to her. Militant Islamic, uh, I can't even pronounce that, had been raiding villages in the area, and Justina's husband was one of their victims. Uh, pray for Justina. She struggles with the fear of more attacks and the deep sorrow of losing her husband. Next slide. Um, it's Pastor Emmanuel. It says, in February 2021, Pastor Emmanuel so right in the midst of, of us dealing with our, our own COVID crisis and slow internet speeds and, you know, not being able to go get coffee. Pastor Emmanuel was finished uh, in evening prayer with his family uh, and the Fulani Islamic militants burst into his home and kidnapped Emmanuel, his wife, and his mother-in-law. And these, the women were eventually released, but Emmanuel suffered a month of brutal treatment because he was a pastor. He was brutally beaten on Sundays. By God's grace, Emmanuel survived. I pray constantly, if not for the help of God, uh, would have been beaten to death. Uh, if not for God's grace, I would have died, he said. Uh, next slide. These beautiful women right here, it says they lived in, in Laos. And after decades of communist rule, equality is highly valued in Laotian villages, where typically several thousand people live under the authority of the village committee. V and son becoming Christians was viewed as a threat to their village which is why they were forced to leave. These women live in steadfastness and faith. Pray for them that they would continue to do so. Next slide. So this is a church service um, in Ethiopia, and uh, the, the question was asked, hey, who needs Bibles? Who needs a Bible? God's word is essential to this country where biblical Christians are distinct minority, harassed by religious traditionists on one side and violently persecuted by radical Muslims on the other. Visit Wasting the So, anyways, next, last slide. Um, these two sisters uh, from Pakistan, says two sisters working in a Pakistani factory, were asked about their faith. This resulted in a report to their boss, who employed a religious leader uh, to force them to convert to Islam. They escaped the factory and were studying uh, for new careers, faithfully following Jesus. It's it's. I share this because I think it's really easy for us to lose sight of our suffering. And again, it's not in any way, shape, or form to minimize our suffering. Our suffering matters. Um, it's important. But it helps to kind of put it into a, a, a bigger, different, unique perspective to identify the fact that, that the church, just like Peter says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And this is our throughout the world moment to just pause and reflect and think about of what our brothers and sisters are going through as they cling to their faith in Jesus, the types of persecutions and pushback that they find themselves facing. Um, at the same time, I, 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 want, I think this is odd, but I, I want to just take a brief moment and I just want to pray for these churches that we just, we just looked at. It's, I think it would be remiss to just not do so. Let me, if you guys, you can bow your head. I don't really care. Um, but Jesus, right now, we... We come to you on behalf of Christians, faithful people, trying to follow you in the midst of a culture that's very unlike ours. 
uh, that is not necessarily open or at least tolerant of Christian values, but in some of these cases, it's just hostile towards us. So God is, as our, the, even just the, the faces of the people that we saw, as they're struggling to follow you, struggling to make sense of uh, radical um, traumas that have fallen them, God, I pray that you give them the strength and energy to continue to follow you in the midst of all of this. So we entrust their well-being into your hands and their faithfulness into your hands, God, that you would just prove yourself true to them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last little movement I want to look at in the passage here in verse 10, I want to just go uh, bit by bit through this because there's a lot of like really good stuff to consider. So he starts off at this little section right here, that after you have suffered a little while, I think it's first of all just um, obvious to just know that suffering is a part of this life. It's a part of this life. Um, just because someone is like, I'm going to follow Jesus, doesn't mean that you're going to outflank suffering. It'll still be there. Um, it'll just come in different packages. In fact, I would even say that suffering within the context of a Christian worldview actually is, is really the best way to go because at least within that context, that suffering takes upon the potential of a redemptive format. Outside of that, you're really left with just well-wishing desires or optimism or how well you're able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or how uh, capable you are of being able to just think positive vibes or surround yourself with good folk to like have good wishes about your circumstances and hardships. There's really no concrete hope. The, the Christian worldview says, no, no, there's suffering and it's bad. We know how bad it can get because we look at Jesus on the cross as our exemplary. Like, we know how bad suffering can actually morph into. However, it's not the end of the story. It, it's not the period at the end of a paragraph. It's actually the beginning of something brand new. And this is, this is the redemptive story, the redemptive nature of suffering that the Christian gospel actually provides. And so he says, after you've suffered a while, um, he moves on to say, the God of all grace, who in his uh, eternal glory in Christ, and I want to just pause and think about the God of all grace. Again, this is just one of those like phrases that, that's worthy to just pause and think about. The God of all grace. I don't know how you think about God. You might think of the God of all vengeance. The God of all wrath. Right? The God of all just anger. Like, and, and that might shape you. You might be that angry, vengeful human being. You know why? Because that's the God you worship. The God of all judgment. You're just very judgy of everybody, because that's the God you worship. The God of all sappy love, just everything's permissible. That's the God you, that's, that's actually not the biblical God, but it is, it, is a, it is a version of a God, kind of a, a makeshift or a remixed version or a bespoken God that we kind of crafted within our culture today. But, but then the, the God of all grace, what type of a person do you think you will become if you worship this God? Gracious, graceful. Again, these are characteristic traits that get formed by those who elevate the embodiment of this. And uh, this is how Peter chooses to describe. Now, again, this is fascinating to me because Peter's talking to a community of people that are dealing with suffering. He could have said the God of all justice will destroy and damn forever everybody who is in disalignment with him. He could have said that, but for whatever reason, he chooses to emphasize this characteristic trait of God. He's a God of grace. 
that is actually at work. He's giving, he's delivering goods, goodness, gifts to his people so that they can flourish and thrive and become like him. And so as he moves on from this, what does this God of all grace do? It goes on to say, he called you. He called you. This is awesome. Um, this is uh, uh, one, one way uh, one um, author or commentator described it is that, that this is a divine, royal summons. Can you imagine, like, getting a phone call from royalty, right? Someone has very, very high level. They pick, you pick up the phone, and they're like, hey, this is the president of the United States, or this is, like, you know, whoever. Um, you would imagine, imagine the reality of, like, wow, you, you, you have my number? You know me? And this is, this is the image that he's describing, is that God knows you. He's got, he's got your number, right? It sounds kind of cheesy and weird and cliche, but you get the idea that God knows who you are. He knows where you're at. Uh, describes him. He knows, how to, he knows the very number of hairs on your head. By the way, God knows how to subtract. But the point of the matter is that God knows everything about you. Everything about you. He loves you. He's for you. He's with you. This is the image, the picture that, that he's describing for us about this God, that this God of all grace has called you. And his whole point is He's got an aim for your lives. There's a telos. There's, there's a point. There's an end to this stuff. Imagine living in a world where you have no hope of an end. Imagine going through some form of suffering where there is, there's no hope of somehow there is, there's an expiration date on this. You don't know if that's even part of the chaos or the chaotic mess that you're in. With God, he's saying, no, no, no. There's an end point. There's an expiration date. There's a point of spoilage where it kind of gets to the final ultimate end where it just gives up, gives in, dies, and then, and then I make all things new. This is the image that Peter wants us to begin to think about, consider about who God is and what God is up to in this world. So uh, God calls us, this divine summons, to commit our ways to Jesus. Now, again, I want to be really clear on this. This is not necessarily like, this, this is, the, the things that he's depositing and sharing are for those that have been part of and, and have responded to the summons. This is where I think it's important to know. Yes, God calls. He's very clear on this. That he's not willing that any should perish. The, the natural state of humanity is moving toward perishing, destruction. I mean, we, we don't need to be, you know, religious scientists or people that study the Bible in depth to really understand this. We just, all we have to do is look at the news and realize, man, it's pretty bad. It's pretty dark. It doesn't seem to be getting better. It just seems to be new cycles of brokenness and violence and rage and anger and fear and threats and nuclear threats. And I mean, I mean, it's been going on for a long, long, long time. I mean, I remember when I was like, I don't know, fifth grade and we were doing like these nuclear drills, like get it under the desk. Like, I don't know how getting under this thing is going to like help save me from like a nuclear explosion, but whatever. It's all good. The point that I would make is that we have been living in this cycle for a really long time and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. There's really no progress that seems to be unfolding. In, in our world. And again, it's not to like stimulate fear. It's just to really point out the obvious. And I think what Peter wants for us to realize is that in the hands of, of God, as he has called us, and as you've responded. So I, I want to pause right now and just emphasize, have you responded? Have you responded? As God has called you, as he's invited you, as he's summoned you, have you responded? Like you might even have some 
degree of ambiguity. Like, what does it even mean to respond? It means that at the end of the day, your life is under submission to King Jesus. You look at Jesus and say, I don't understand everything about life or everything what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But what I do know, the deepest, deepest longing desire of my heart is to follow Jesus. I don't even know what that looks like sometimes. I'm not even sure how that plays out in practical levels in my life. That's just simply called normal, like warp and woof discipleship. But all of those questions come and begin to be answered throughout the sum total and duration of your life. But the most important question to, for you to answer right now is, is have you responded to that divine summons? As he's called you, have you said, yes, Lord, I, I will follow you. There's a lot that doesn't make sense to me. There's a lot of questions that I still have. But you alone, Jesus, hold the keys to life. I don't know where else to turn. You alone, Father, are the, are the, are the originator, the, 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 the creator, the fountainhead of all grace. And I need grace. And I don't know where else to turn to get grace. You're not going to get grace from any other, like at least on an extensive, unending degree. And it's available to you right now. So I want you to just pause and think, if that's you, what does it mean to step into that? It just means to really, in the quietness of your heart, just say, God, I need you. I turn away from the ways I've wired my life and try to orient myself. I turn to you, and I want to follow and devote myself to you. And here's what he goes on to say. To those that have been in this place of receiving and responding to the call that God gives, he goes on to make this point. Um, Listen to it again. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. So this glory is, is rooted in Christ, this divine favor. I mean, again, think of it as, what, what are we, most of us, all longing for? We're longing to be acknowledged. I mean, that's literally what, what is at the heart of this weird moment we live in in culture right now called TikTok. This, this whole focus on self. This whole focus on trying to just be an influencer, this whole focus on just doing ridiculous TikTok challenges or whatever the case is, all of it at its very center core is a desire to be seen, to be known, to be acknowledged, to be loved. It's at the very core of it all. And I would suggest it's actually a cheap substitute for what the gospel offers. Always, on repeat, over and over and over again without end. Because I say it's a cheap substitute because, yes, it may work. You may have that video that goes viral and you might be living in that limelight. You might have your 15 minutes of fame. But then what? Because at some point that 15 minutes of fame ends. Now you got to recreate something new. Now you got to do something even more crazy, more just extreme and more on the edge and more just capturing people's attention. But then at the end of the day, it just, Never truly fully satisfies. But his whole point is that in Jesus, the glory of Christ will be shared by God to you. And then he finishes with a little section. And he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. I'm going to just focus on these last little uh, four words here. All of these are in the future uh, context where he's looking to something that will take place in a future state. I'm going to try the Greek, and so I might sound silly here, but I'm going to try as best as I can. Because in, in, in the Greek language, it actually sounds kind of cool, and I'm probably going to hack it, but I'm going to do the best I can, so you're welcome. Um, Ketotizo, steneo, sterizo, familio. That's, that's what God's doing, in case you're like, what did he just say? Like, that's what God's doing in you, right? What does that mean? Number one, it, 
he will restore you. He will restore you. What does it mean to be restored? The word that's actually used here is the word to realign. Uh, have you ever had a back going out, gone out or, or a, a bone that's out of joint or something that's just not right? Um, or have you ever heard this slide? Have you ever like uh, had just this like room full of Legos that are just like in pure chaos? Have you ever had that? Next slide. Here we go. We got this. We're going to move this over so you'll see this. All right. This, I, I worked really hard on this for you guys. You're welcome. So imagine having just a, a floor of Legos, just pure chaos. But to move from pure chaos Legos to Millennium Falcon? That's amazing. Like, how does that happen? That something needs to be done to create order out of chaos. That's literally what the word uh, katharhizo means. God creates order out of chaos. Another way to think of it is to, to fit all things together. God fits all things that look like they're out of joint, that look like there's chaos. So just pause and think about what areas in your life right now are just defined as chaotic. Where is that? We all have it. For some of us, it might be more external. It's more obvious, more blatant. For others, it's kind of like this internal, constant, uh, acute anxiousness that just, no matter what you do, does not go away. This is exactly what he says. He will bring forth this sense of restoration. Secondly, he describes the word confirm. This is another word that basically just simply means steneo, um, to mature or to equip. Bless you. Um, the big idea here is to, to move from a state of, of ignorance and uh, um, you know, non-developed state into a place where you begin to grow and you develop. You, you move towards a state of progress and growth. Uh, the next word is the word uh, um, strengthen. Uh, it's literally the Greek word sterizo, right? We get obvious you know, big E on the IHR of what that literally means, steroids. We literally get the English word steroids from this. And the big idea here is strength. He will give you spiritual ability, strength, muscle to do what God has called you to do. God does this. God's doing this. Lastly, he describes the word establish. Let him establish it. I love this. The root word to this particular word is, is the word for a steadfast. A steadfast. Another way of thinking about this is a solid foundational position. Uh, this is the opposite, by the way, of drift, <laughs> crumbling, or being shaken. All right, I think most of us would agree, if we were to like kind of do a self-assessment upon our lives, most of us would probably look and say, yeah, I kind of feel like a lot of times I'm just drifting. There's, there's no real orientation in my life. There's no real, I, I don't really wake up with a, with a knowledge of where I should be heading or what I should be doing, what I should be devoting my time, my money, my energy to. And I'm just kind of drifting. Or we kind of feel like I'm just always feeling fragile and like I'm crumbling. Now, again, some of you, that's, that's, that's just the moment, the place where you're in right now. If it's a continual, ongoing, unending cycle that just never gets broken, it's, it's, that's the general status of your life, then, then, then maybe at some point it requires, it calls for you to just pause and realize, am I trying to constantly build myself up? Am I trying to interject my own energy, pull myself up in my own bootstraps to make this happen? Or can I pause and just consider God's power in doing what he wants to do in my life? Um, and or am I just consistently shaken? Just everything shakes and rattles me. And you know, I know for me personally, like, there have been moments in my life where I find myself, everything just seems to shake and rattle me. Everything moves me towards this edge of anxiety. 
And those, to me, they become kind of like the big red light on my, you know, dashboard of my life. It just causes me to realize something's not right in my soul. It causes me to realize I might need to step back out of the system, out into the fray, and then begin to seek God who wants to reorient and put back my life back together again in ways that are creative and good, that kind of align with this idea of restoration and confirmation and strengthening and establishing. One translator noted this. He says, so that the default, that, so that no defect will remain in you. This is the idea of establishing. So that no defect remains in you, so that nothing may shake you, and so that you may overcome every adverse force. That seems to be the indication in the picture that God is at work doing in our lives. And the last movement here is uh, Peter breaks out into what's just known as a doxology, where he, he makes his declaration, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And what I love about this is that Peter, again, if you're familiar with Peter's life, he obviously was up close and personal with Jesus, right? He knew Jesus personally. Um, he was part of kind of like that inner circle of like three, right? Peter, James, and John. So he was, he was with Jesus a lot. He saw Jesus in ways that most people never even saw Jesus. And there's a lot that was not even reported about what Jesus did and what, how his life was and all that. But Peter was up close and personal to all of this. And Peter recognizes that no matter what, there's his final ultimate assessment is this, is that whoever Jesus is, however you think of him, Jesus, uh, Peter's assessment of Jesus is that whoever he is, he alone, to him belongs all dominion forever and ever. What does that even mean, all dominion, right? The, the idea of dominion is a word that is, is kingly. It's kingly language. So if you're a king and you have a kingdom, that kingdom, that dumb part, literally is king's dominion, king's domain. And his whole point here is that this, this planet, this planet where you live right now, it all belongs to Jesus. All of it. I don't know how you think about the afterlife, what that looks like. You know, a lot of times I think Christians for long periods just thought the afterlife was all about getting out of this planet, going someplace else for all eternity, living on a cloud, playing a harp in some form of weird netherland. That's actually unbiblical, by the way. That's not the Bible. That's, that's Platonism. The scripture is actually that this planet belongs to the Lord. Right now, the operating system of this planet is absolutely destroyed and ruined and grotesquely uh, destructive and vandalizing the very purposes of God. It's, it's this, the system of Babylon, New Testament writers. That's, that's not like a conspiracy theorist, podcaster, like version of it. Like, that's literally how the Bible describes it. That this is how the Bible describes it. The, 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 the influence, the, the operating system that this world is currently under, subjected under, has distorted all that God is up to. But one day, Jesus will return back to this planet and make all things new. Jesus actually said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This place belongs to Jesus. Right now, it's suffering under the weight of horrible sin and destruction. But his promise is to make all things new. And his promise is to take those of us that have placed confidence in him, no matter how fragile or broken or unstable your life may be, 
to bring you into a place where your state will be one that can only be described as restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. So what that means, what that means, in closing, is in your current state where you find yourself wrestling with anxiety, exhaustion, or suffering, this is the word of hope. You don't have to go out and find a scapegoat and kill him. You don't have to somehow fight and push and take vengeance against all your enemies. That God is at work right now, currently, presently, and he will make all things new. That just seems to be this theme that keeps arising over and over and over again. That God is at work. And this is the message that Peter is communicating. Lastly, in closing, I want to finish with this brief little poem um, from a gal by the name of Frances Habergale. If you're familiar with her, she lived like in the like mid-1800s. Um, she also wrote a really you know, well-known song called Take My Life and Let It Be. Some of you guys are familiar with that. I'm not going to sing it for you. Uh, you're welcome. But um, she wrote this song called Crown After Cross. And I just want to read you a couple lines to it because she got it. She actually died at like age 41, so she died pretty young. And, uh, but this song is absolutely phenomenal. She understood suffering. She understood what God does with our trauma and anxiety and pain and exhaustion in the midst of our suffering. Uh, she said this, light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weariness, crown after cross, sweet after bitter, hope after tears, home after wandering, praise after tears. Sheaves after sowing, sun after rain, sight after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last. It's a great song. And it's great because it's deeply tethered to the historic Christian message of the gospel. That God has taken the evil and the brokenness and the sinfulness of not only this world, but your heart and mine. And he's done something with it. He's destroyed it. He's broken its bond on our lives. And he's called us to follow him. And those who've called, who's responded to that call, we begin to enter in and discover this God that is actually at work making grace with our lives.